Last week, Christian gave us uh, an introduction to the parable of the sower. If you're not familiar with the parable of the sower, he did a great job of explaining it and, and how there's this sower that goes out to sow seed. And for us that are not familiar with farming culture, I'll admit I'm one of those, it, it doesn't always quite connect about how this sower is throwing seed, almost wasting seed in vines and thorns on, on a path that's already trodden where he knows that the seed won't grow and yet he's still throwing the seed. And so he then talked about how this, the seed is the gospel, how God is spreading that seed, the gospel, throughout the world. And then we got to, he, he explained how Acts is a picture, the book of Acts is a picture of that unstoppable gospel going throughout the world and that there is a harvest that is coming. This seed will produce fruit. The gospel is unstoppable. There are many challenges to it. A big part of that challenge is our own failures. And yet, the gospel will continue on. That should be an encouragement. That no matter how bad of a preacher I may be, no matter how bad I mess up the gospel, it's still going to go. It's still going to grow, and it's still going to produce fruit. Today, as we turn back to Revelation... We're going to see the harvest of that fruit. We're going to look at the harvest. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 14. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Revelation is way in the back. So the Bible is made up of 66 different books. Revelation is the last book. And then within each book, it's separated into chapters and verses. So we're looking at chapter 14, and we're going to read the entire thing. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have, not been, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark 
of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the cluster from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So we've got a lot going on here. We've, We've entered, or we've been in, we're actually wrapping up this segment that is an interlude. So if you remember, as we walk back through this series, as we study through Revelation, as we looked at Hopeful, By the way, we named it Hopeful because Revelation should give us hope. As we study Revelation, it it reveals that God is victorious, and so we, of all people, should be full of hope. So it starts off with with a call to write a vision. So we see a first vision, and John writes seven letters. He's told to write seven letters to seven different churches. And then we see the opening of the second vision. He is pulled up into the throne room of heaven. And in that throne room... He sees 24 elders worshiping God, and he sees the glory of God. And then he sees this scroll with seven seals, and he cries because no one can open the scroll. But then the Lamb of God, who represents Jesus, who is Jesus, can open the scroll. But in order to open the scroll, he has to break these seven seals. The scroll is going to reveal the end times. In order to get there, he has to break seven seals. So he starts to break these seven seals. The first, the first four seals is a, is a lifting of the restrainer, meaning the Holy Spirit will be lifted from the earth and the restraining of our wickedness will end. So right now we can think, if you think the world is wicked right now, if you think the world is full of evil right now, just remember, God is restraining that evil. God is restraining the wickedness. So the first four seals will be a lifting of that restrainer and we will see man's wicked full force and so we'll continue through but but the whole idea of the the seals is that he's going to reveal that we deserve eternal damnation we deserve hell that's the point of the seals And then we get into the next part, which is the trumpet. So at at the seventh seal, as he opens the seventh seal, and the scroll can be read, inside the seventh seal are seven trumpets. And the first four trumpets reveal that God is coming to judge. And he's going to do it in such a supernatural way that no one can blame it on 
the natural events. No one's going to be able to say, oh, the moon turned to blood. That was a naturally occurring event. So God is revealing our wickedness and revealing his ability to judge wickedness all as an, as a, an attempt for repentance. So he's pushing mankind, the book of Revelation, and up to this point, he's pushing mankind to repent. He's, he's begging, he's showing, he's revealing that mankind needs to repent. So we'll see our wickedness in full force, we'll see that he has come to judge, and then he get, brings about what's called the first of three woes. So the three woes are the last parts of the trumpets. And each one is literally releasing hell on earth. So the first two, we're going to see demonic forces being released from hell to torture humans. And, it, and the whole point of it, so we see our wickedness, we see that God is coming to judge, and then we see hell on earth, and God is saying, look, if you think this is bad, just wait for eternity. You think these demons torturing you is bad right now, wait for eternity. It's going to be worse. We see all of these judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the woes, they're all showing us that we need to repent. And yet, we see throughout the book of Revelation that people refuse to repent. It's not confusion. God is making it crystal clear. He's making it so clear that no one can raise their hand at Judgment Day and say, hey God, I didn't see like the fine print. You know that's the, the agree, agreement to, or the user agreement that you click on without reading? No one will be able to raise their hand and say, God, I didn't actually read that user agreement. I don't know what's going on here. No one's going to be able to claim ignorance. No one's going to be able to claim confusion. It's going to be clear that the result or disbelief in God is a result of rebellion, not confusion. And so we got to this point where it's what we called an interlude. The interlude does not continue or drive the narrative, but gives us a deeper understanding of the narrative. And in this interlude, two weeks ago, we got to see Satan as the dragon, and the dragon summons forth two different beasts that we call the unholy trinity. Now the unholy trinity is going to have the ability, God is letting him plead his case to be the ruler. And he's going to try to deceive everyone. And he's actually going to be a fake knockoff, a cheap imitation of the Holy Trinity. So we see that the beast is going to have a mortal wound, or it seemed to be a mortal wound, but he'll be healed. And he's going to try to convince everyone to worship him. And he's even going to breathe a breath of life into an image. It's just a cheap knockoff. And in the end, he's going to convince people to, to have or to be sealed by him. The sealing of the beast is an allegiance, a loyalty, and it shows or reveals ownership. So here he is amongst the earth dwellers. Earth dweller is, is a, a way of saying non-believers. So here's the beast or the two beasts and the dragon amongst the non-believers, and he's sealing them, showing ownership. And even with all of the trumpets and the seals showing mankind that we are wicked, that we deserve this, and yet he's, God is giving us a chance to repent. Even among all of this, people are willingly taking the seal of the beast because they want loyalty to the beast. 
out of rebellion to God. And that's where we catch up in chapter 14. So hopefully I've brought you up to date if you've been missing, but that's where we're at in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is broken down into three different sections. So verses 1 through 5 is going to be uh, a sealing of, of the saints, and it's going to be contrasting that of the sealing of the earth dwellers or the non-believers. So we see the, the sealing of the saints, and we've got a contrasting there. Then we've got uh, verses 6 through 15 is going to be the final gospel or final declaration, the final appeal for repentance. This is so important, I think, because once again, people will, will, will launch attacks at God saying, you never gave us a chance. God, where were you? And this is clearly revealing that the gospel has been spread, that the sower of the seed was true that he was spreading the gospel, that they had every opportunity available to repent, and yet they still refused. Then 14 through 20 will be the harvest. This whole chapter is written as a proliptic. Now, a proliptic is written as if uh, future events are already existing or ha have already been accomplished. That's important for us to realize that in, in this uh, interlude, he is writing as a proliptic, so he's writing as if these events, these end-time events, have already occurred. So they haven't occurred yet, and I would say that they haven't even occurred yet in the tribulation. He's looking forward, so we've gotten about what I would call halfway through the three, first three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation, we've gotten halfway through that, and at this point in the interlude, he's driving us deeper into the narrative, but not driving the narrative further, so he's looking halfway through at the end. That's what this last section of the interlude, chapter 14, is going to be like. So that's a proliptic. Can everybody say proliptic? It's kind of a weird word, huh? All right, so proliptic, and that is a future event written as though it has already occurred. Okay, so that's the whole thing is written as a proliptic. So then I look, looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with them 144,000. These are contrasting those who are sealed by the beast. So the 144,000 have been sealed by Christ. It is a, a different sealing than what we experience today. As believers, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So when you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals you for the day of redemption, meaning the day that we will be redeemed by Christ, we have been sealed. There is nothing that can break that seal. It is a different sealing from what happens in the tribulation. So if you can picture it, when the tribulation occurs, at the beginning of the tribulation, the church will actually be uh, taken out of the earth. Uh, the, the theological term is raptured. So raptured literally means just taken up. So the, the church that we know of today will be taken up, then we'll enter into the seven years of tribulation, and these believers will have a different ceiling. But this ceiling will be by Christ and will show ownership by Christ. And they will have an allegiance and a loyalty to Christ. This is in direct contrast with those who will be sealed by the beast, who are pledging their allegiance to the beast and are actually saying, beast, you own me. 
when, we are, when these believers are sealed by Christ, they are saying, Christ owns me. We see a theme throughout the New Testament, and in particular the New Testament writers, in their introductions, they call themselves a slave of Christ. That was not in term of endearment. People weren't going around introducing themselves as, hey, my name is Aaron, I'm a slave of Jen. You know, I just gave my life to her one day, and now she owns me. But was representative of, hey, I no longer am the one that calls the shots in my life. I have recognized that in my rebellion, I've messed things up. And I no longer am the one that calls the shots. I have given my life to Christ. He owns me now. And he's the one that calls the shots for me. So that's what's going on. You will either be owned by the beast, or you will be owned by Christ. Who owns you? So many people think that they can own themselves. I'm going to be the one that calls the shots. I'm going to be the one that gets control over my life. We think that, but the truth is, when you think you're called, the one calling the shots, really you're just living in rebellion against God, and it is, in fact, the beast that is the one who owns you. So these are in direct contrast to those who are owned by the beast, but they are owned by Christ, who had his name on, and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven. And this voice is going to be described in three ways, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Some of your translations will say, harpist harping their harps. And that is the more literal translation. I just like to say that. It's kind of fun to say. Harpist harping their harps. All right? All three of these emphasize the, the joy and the worship of Christ in his victory. So you can imagine these, all these uh, people who have victory in Christ, worshiping Christ because of his victory. We have victory in Christ. You no longer have to be defined by your sin. You no longer have to be defined by all of your mess-ups from the past. You can be defined by Christ. This is so important, and we'll get into it more, but too often we let other things define us. What defines you? One of our great problems in this culture is we let sexuality define us. So we are defined by our gender, by our attraction. That is one of the great lies. We are defined by Christ. So, they're emphasizing the joy of the victory in Christ. And this should be urging us to continue. That we can do anything. We can suffer greatly because we already have the victory in Christ. I know lots of us, many of us in this room, have suffered. We've suffered greatly. And all kinds of different suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering. Yet we can continue on and we can continue on in joy because Christ has the victory. This is a proliptic. He's looking into the future, seeing the victory of Christ. 
that is ours right now. Because we are found in Christ. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ. So there's victory in Christ. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Okay, so we've got a picture here. There, there are all these voices singing this song of joy because of the victory in Christ. These voices are in the throne room. So we go all the way back to chapter 4 where he gets caught up into the throne room. We see the glory of God. That's where these voices are singing the song. But the 144,000 are on Mount Zion. They are in, on earth. And what this represents is this song being taught to the 140,000 from heaven to earth. It shows us and it is symbolic of God's kingdom coming to earth. Not now, but in the future, God's kingdom will come to the earth and will come to earth in victory. So these 144,000 cannot, or are the only ones that can learn the song. However, others can understand the song. John understood the song, though he couldn't learn the song. I'm not entirely sure how that works out. But he understood the song, and he understood that it was about the glory of God. Now we get a description of the 144,000. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. And we need to stop and talk about this for a couple seconds, because there's a lot of, I think, really bad theology that, have, that has been based off of this one little part of Scripture and ignoring a huge amount of the Bible. So how many women, I'm just really curious, and I guess you don't have to show your hand, but how many women were just offended? <laughs> like, wait, 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 I defile people? What, what on earth does that mean? So there's all kinds of really bad theology about this. And uh, number one, I don't think that it makes celibate people more righteous. So some people read this and they think, oh, so that means if you're celibate, you're more righteous than those who are non-celibate. I don't think that's going there. Some people would also read this and say, Oh, so men are more righteous than women. Oh man, you lowly women. When will you be so righteous? No, it's also not going there either. It's not, it's not an attack on those who are non-celibate, and it's not an attack on women. I think to understand this, we have to go all the way back to Genesis, and when God creates woman, what does he say? Does he say, now I have created something inferior to man who will always be less righteous than man? No. He calls woman good. Woman is a part of his creation who is highly valued, who also bears the image of God. Women are highly valued. They are a part of creation, and they complement men. Men complement women. Women complement men. Neither is more righteous. Neither is better. It is very important for us to learn that. So this is not an attack on women. But then after he creates man and woman, what does God say? What's the first commandment God gives? Be fruitful and multiply. What's another way of saying be fruitful and multiply? Be physically intimate and bear children, right? So the first command God gives is to be physically intimate. I don't think God sees sex as, a, as an immoral thing. I don't think he looks at this and thinks, oh man, look at all those unrighteous married couples doing what I told them to do. No. So this is not an argument for celibacy. God has given us a command. And then he gave us 
parameters in which we can do that thing. He gave us parameters in which we can be fruitful and multiply in a healthy way. And when we go outside of those parameters, we cause damage to ourselves, we cause damage to others, and it is unholy because we are causing damage. So if we are... If we are within the parameters that God has given us to be fruitful and multiply, then it is actually a holy act because it is obeying God. Husbands and wives, within the parameters that God has given you, it is holy. It's important for you to realize that. Young people who are unmarried, there are parameters God has given. And to go outside of those parameters is unholy. If you, God give it as a blessing to us. It is a gift. And if you want to fully experience that gift, live within the parameters God has given you. And it is a great gift. So all that to say, it's not a knock on people who are not celibate. It is not a knock on women. So what is going on here? I think there's two views that kind of clarify it. Uh, I will, I'll explain the views and then you can decide which view you want to go with. So the, the first view is a literal view. And the literal view uh, looks at this as that these guys are literal virgins. They literally have never, uh, or these people I should say, are literal virgins. They literally have never been fruitful and multiplied. So that's the idea of, uh, of the literal uh, interpretation. And they, they might look at something like, and what they would say is that although this is literal, God doesn't elevate celibacy over, but God is saying that right now, because in the tribulation, times of suffering will be so horrible that it just won't be the time. That there is a time and a place for everything, and during the great tribulation, it's not going to be the time to be fruitful and multiply. So they would look at something like Jesus during his Olivet Discourse. If you're not familiar with the Olivet Discourse, it's found in, in Matthew 24. And it is when Jesus is walking back to, it's during the Passion Week. Jesus, during the Passion Week, he actually stays the night in Bethany every night. So he comes down into Jerusalem, and at night he walks back to Bethany. Bethany is around on the other side of Mount Olivet. And as he's walking back one night, his disciples ask him about the end times. And during the end times, he tells them, it's going to be so difficult, woe to you who are pregnant. And he gives these woes of like, it's going to be so intense. So that's one of our evidences that it's a literal, is that it's going to be so intense that it's just not the time. You also might look over at the story of Uriah. If you're not familiar with the story of Uriah, Uriah was one of King David's mighty men. King David is found in the Old Testament. He was a man after God's own heart, although he still messed up. And so he had these great, mighty men of valor. Uriah was one of them. And while Uriah was off at war, King David, who should have been off at war, stayed home. And while he was home, he found Uriah's wife and had an affair with her. She became pregnant. In order to cover up his sin, he called Uriah home from the front lines. He got Uriah drunk and told him to go be with his wife. But Uriah slept on the stairs of the palace. And he said, I cannot go enjoy the comforts of my home while all the others are out at war. And David realized he was more, that Uriah 
was acting more righteous than David. And so that's one of, another one of our evidences that there is going to be, during the Great Tribulation, it's going to be such an intense time of persecution that it will not be the time to follow the commandment of being fruitful and multiply. That's view number one. View number two is a symbolic view. view. Uh, and what they would do is they would look back at the first vision and to, throughout the letters to the seven different churches, sexual immorality was connected with idolatry. So if you remember all the way back several months ago when we walked through those letters, sexual immorality uh, had this connection with idolatry because there was this pressure to conform. And if you didn't conform with what was called the imperial cult or emperor worship, if you didn't want to worship the emperor, you would be cut off financially. You could no longer participate in the markets. And when you couldn't participate in the markets, you would end up becoming destitute. Well, how were you going to participate in the markets? Well, you had to participate with imperial worship. The way you would participate in imperial worship was you would go to the temple. And while you were at the temple, you were expected to take part of the cultic temple prostitution. So therefore, sexual immorality was connected with idolatry. And so they would say that these people... Those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, this is symbolic for those who have not participated in idolatry. That's their take on this. And I think the point, whichever side you land on, the point is that these people refused to conform to the world system, and therefore they are pure. The result of them refusing to conform to the world system is purity. That's the point that John is driving at, that they refused to participate in the world system. All right, so hopefully we cleared that up for you. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. This is just describing basic discipleship, that they were, they were disciples and they were even willing to follow the Lamb unto death. These have been redeemed for mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. So later on, we're going to see the harvest. These 144,000 are thought of as the firstfruits. The firstfruits is an Old Testament term. Uh, When you you went out and you received your harvest or you collected your harvest, you would give the firstfruits or the first part of your harvest to God. And it is recognition that all that you have, all that you own is actually God's. You think about that? We like to think about, I own this. This is mine. Nothing you have is actually yours. It is all God's. And God is letting you use it. We need to be good stewards of what God is letting us use. So these are the first fruits of the actual harvest that will come later. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. So this is basically saying that they faithfully proclaimed the gospel. Throughout their lives, during this great tribulation period, although there was intense suffering, they faithfully proclaimed the gospel. This next section has three different angels, and there is actually a a, a basic flow for these angels. The first angel has a call to repent. It is the final call for repentance. The second angel will show us the failure of the world system, 
the system that is rebellion against God. And the third angel will show us the judgment of all who embrace Jesus. So then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. Everywhere you read in the New Testament where there is a gospel, it is about salvation. The gospel is always about salvation. And it is always very clear that God created us and we rebelled against him. We all shook our fist in rebellion against him and said, forget you, God. I don't want to do things your way. I want to do things my way. And as a result, we were separated from God and we deserve eternal punishment or eternal separation from God because of our rebellion. But God being such a great God and loving us so well that he came and he paid the price for our rebellion. And all you have to do to enter into that relationship with God again is to put your faith and trust in the work of Christ. Because of our rebellion, we deserve death. God came and he died on the cross for us, paying the price for our rebellion. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are no longer a slave to your rebellion, but you are made alive together with God. You are no longer a slave to your rebellion. You are no longer a slave to sin. So that is the eternal gospel. And it is all to God's glory. So he, had, he came with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Once again, this is just shorthand for earth dwellers or those who are non-believers. To every nation and tribe and language of people. So this is all-encompassing. Every single person on earth who is in rebellion against God will hear this gospel. This is the final, last call to repentance. We go all the way back to the seals, and God has revealed man's true wickedness. We see the judgment, that these people know judgment is coming. They get a glimpse of how horrible hell will be, and then they get this last call to repentance saying, hey, look, God will save you from this. You just have to trust him. That's what's going on here. And so he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the spring and air. So this is calling a clear choice. You can either put your faith and trust in God, and you can worship Him, and you can say, God, I no longer want to be the one to call the shots in my life, but I submit my life to You. And you can receive salvation. Or you can worship the beast. And you can say, God, I want to continue in my rebellion. I want to continue to call the shots because I think I know better than you. And you will receive judgment. The choice is clear. No one can declare that they didn't know. And then another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. Now remember, this is a proliptic, so he's looking into the future. Babylon has not fallen yet. But at the end of time, Babylon will fall. Babylon the Great is a reference back to Daniel 4. And what it, it equals, or it's, it's symbolic of the world's system. So Babylon the Great is the world system. The world that operates in rebellion against God the world that operates as saying, I want to be the one that's in control. I want to be the one that calls the shots. And what he's saying is this Babylon, the world system, this rebellion against God has fallen. And it's describing the failure of the world's system. 
The world that is rebelling against God will fail. Some of us hold tightly onto this world. Although we say we put our faith and trust in Christ, we're still holding tightly onto this system, thinking that we can be the ones that call the shots, thinking that we can assign value to whatever we want, thinking we can still operate in rebellion. But that will still fail you. So Babylon the Great, the world system, who made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And we see sexual immorality and the twisted sexual immorality so clearly today. There is a very strong push. And we, it's so easy to identify as Christians right now, right? I mean, we can so clearly see it, and we see the, all the letters of the acronym, and we even see the last one, that T, and we're like, how foolish can the world system be to believe that that T is reality? And how twisted has our sexual immorality become? But what we're looking at is the result, or the, I should say the symptom of a deeper hurt or a deeper cause. So if we back up one, because we get caught up on this sexual immorality, but if we back up to drink the wine of the passion, it is the wine of the passion that creates the sexual immorality issues that we so clearly see. Which, by the way, a lot of people like to trace back all that acronym, the LGBT, they like to trace that back to like pornography and say that's the start of it, or even further back to no-fault divorce and say that's the start of it. And I would say no, those are still just symptoms of the deeper cause. The deeper cause is our own desire. That's the world system. Letting our desire become our God. And we think it's easy, or I shouldn't say we think, it is easy for us to point at someone else who has fully twisted their desire or this natural desire that God has given them. They've fully twisted it, they've fully given in, and now they're claiming this wild thing out here. And it's easy for us to point our finger at them and not look into our own heart and say, where have I let my desire become my God? Now, I want to be really clear. God gave us desires. And there are desires that are really good things. A desire for my kids to grow up knowing God, that's a good thing. A desire for our church to grow and mature in Christ, that's a good thing. But when I let those desires begin to become my God, then that becomes an idol and it becomes idolatry. We so easily let good desires become idolatry, and then we use this as an excuse to manipulate and abuse others. How many churches have had the idolatry of growing a church, and it's all for the glory of God, right? I want to grow this church, and we're going to become this great church, and it's all to the glory of God, and because I want to glorify God by growing this church, then I'm going to manipulate and abuse our congregation, and the church is suffers because of idolatry, because of my own desire. Instead of asking, God, how can I be obedient to you? I say, God... I have a desire to glorify you, and I'm going to make that desire the greatest thing in my life. 
God has given us a desire, every single one of us, a desire for a spouse. And how often do we twist that desire and all of a sudden it becomes an idol in our life and we can manipulate and abuse others to fulfill that desire. And going back to my children, I have this God-given great desire that my children would grow up and know Him. And that's a good thing. But when that becomes an idol and I let that desire, instead of obedience to God, when I let that desire control my heart, then I use it as an excuse to manipulate and abuse my kids. And the end result is legalism and my kids hating God. No, it's not sexual immorality. That's just the symptom. The real issue is letting our desires become our gods, letting our desires control us, letting our desires become idols. That's the real issue. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, showing ownership, resembling ownership, or symbolic of ownership, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. The wine of God's wrath is in contrast with the wine of our own passion. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and then we'll see the results, right? Uh, The results. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And then we see the the extent of it. So there's God's wrath, we see the description of God's wrath, and then we see the extent. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night night. And that seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? No rest, day and night, forever and ever, there will be this torment. And some people will say, how dare you, God? But we have to go all the way back to where God has revealed our own wickedness. And God has given us a glimpse of his judgment. And God has given us a glimpse of hell. And then God gives us the opportunity to repent. And yet, There are some who still live in rebellion. And beyond that, the reason why God's wrath is being poured out is because He cares. Some people, and especially in our culture, we like to emphasize God's love. But we totally ignore God's justice. God's love and God's justice cannot be divorced. So let's pretend you're in your house. Someone breaks into your house and tortures the people you love right in front of your eyes. They torture the people you love, and then they kill them. And you say, meh, I'm going to go watch a show. Did you really love that person? Or would you have some wrath built up? Would you have some anger built up? God's justice reveals his love. Because he loves, he cares. If he didn't care, if he had no wrath, then he wouldn't really love. But his creation has been in rebellion, and his creation has been torturing one another since humanity's existence. You better believe he cares. And he cares, he loves, and is that reason that he has justice coming. So, 
Then he gives us one last description of who these people that will be tormented. These worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of his name. Essentially, these people are those same people that are still living in rebellion. That although they've seen everything up to this point, they know the fine print, they've, they've read the user agreement, they've still said, no, that's not what I want. What I want is to continue in my rebellion. What I want is to continue to abuse and use others. What I want is to be the one that calls the shots. So they are deserving of the torment. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So this is the only time, where, or the sec, one of two times that we see the Spirit speak in Revelation, and this is to emphasize this point. It's, it's like an exclamation mark on this point, and the point is contrasting the torment that non-believers will receive, the, the torment that we all deserve, but by God's grace, He has provided a way out, and that is faith and trust in Christ. And what will we receive? Rest. From their labors. So the unbelievers, those still in rebellion against God, will receive torment day and night. The believers will receive rest. So this is a warning to the earth dwellers, the non-believers, but it is a reminder to believers that many will die in the tribulation. Many will suffer. But it is a reminder of what we are suffering for. And that is something so much bigger than you or I. It also gives us reassurance of the victory that is in Christ. The final part is the, the reaping. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. The white cloud signifies purity, wisdom, and glory, and the one seated on it. The white cloud is not a mode of transportation. It is actually a throne. It is a throne signifying the sovereignty of Christ. In fact, all of 14 is signifying the sovereignty of Christ and that Christ is the one who can judge. You and I can't judge. Christ can. So Christ is coming and He will judge. And He's got a golden crown on His head and a sharp sickle in His hand. And another angel came out of the temple. We'll see a couple different angels come out of the temple. The, the reason behind the angel coming out of the temple signifies that they are coming with an assignment from God with the authority of God. So they are coming out of the temple to show that they have an assignment and authority from God. And he calls to Christ, and he says, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So we saw the 144,000, those were the first fruits. But there will be many more that will be gathered in this reaping. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The believers were reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who had the authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the cluster from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trotted outside the city. Outside the city symbolizes their absolute refusal to submit to God. It symbolizes their outright rebellion against God. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for about 1,600 stadia. Uh, that is about the size of Israel. From all, all the way from the northern border where it meets Syria, all the way to the southern border where it meets 
Egypt, there will be blood as high as a horse. It is a severe warning about what rebellion will eventually end up with. In Romans 1, Paul says or writes that the, that the wrath of God is coming because people exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is called the great exchange. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. We have all believed at least some part of the lie. Each one of us. One of the reasons why so many of us have to go to counseling is because we're still believing a part of the lie. And what we need to do is exchange the lie for the truth of God that is found in His Word. The harvest is coming. Will you be harvested by Christ for rest from your labor? Or will you be harvested to the wine press where your blood will flow because you have ignored every single call from God? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are merciful that you are patient, that you do so many things to reveal to us that we need you, that we have been living in rebellion, and yet you have provided a way, a way out of the wrath. And we thank you that you care so much that your wrath is coming, that you don't just leave us to continue to abuse your creation, but that your wrath is coming, you have provided a way out of that wrath, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live in repentance, that we would turn from rebellion and say, God, I want to be your slave. I want you to call the shots in my life. In your name we pray. Amen.